We demonstrate a love of astronomy on this show, especially planetary explorations. We've chatted with Matt Kaplan, whose planetary reports heard locally on KDVS. We talked with Scientific American columnist Michael Shermer and Phil Plate of BadAstronomy.com about those who say we never went to the moon. We've talked to Planetary Society's Bruce Betts about Mercury and Cornell's Steve Squires about the ro robot rovers he's still driving around on Mars. We've talked with astronomer William Hartman about his guide to the solar system. But our interview today is with someone off our short list of most desired guests. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an award-winning author and astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History. He's hosted Nova Science Now and writes a monthly column for Natural History magazine. As director of the Hayden Planetarium, Dr. Tyson found himself embedded in the controversy over whether Pluto is a planet. His new book, The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet, is about this controversy. Neil deGrasse Tyson offers his insights in science with a wry sense of humor. And as one who entertains as he informs, he's definitely our kind of guy. We're pleased to have him join us to discuss The Pluto Files and hopefully some of his other writings. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks for having me. And that's quite a lineup of folks you, you get routinely there. So I'm, you know, I've, my hat's off to who you're pulling on the show. Well, uh, you're, you're, you're right in the lineup, sir. And can we start by talking about, um, interestingly, uh, an interesting fact that what ancient people meant by that term of planet and how that concept of planet has undergone some rather surprising radical changes over time. Yeah, this is a, a part of the backstory that many people don't know, that the word planet had only ever been defined once, and that was thousands of years ago in ancient Greece, where planetes from the Greek means wanderer. And they looked up in the sky and saw seven objects that wandered against the background stars. This is before any understanding of gravity was had. So the fact that they're called wanderers is an indication that there was still some mystery about how and why they moved as they did. So those seven wanderers were Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the Sun, and the Moon. Those were the, the seven planets, unambiguously defined. And we traced the names of our seven days of the week to the gods that had been associated with those seven objects, the Roman and, of course, the Norse gods. So, of course, Monday was after the Moon, and Sunday is the Sun, and Saturday is Saturn, that sort of thing. And it's, there it was until Copernicus said, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe the Sun is in the middle of all this, and we go around the Sun. We, Earth, go around, and if we go around the sun just the way sort of Mercury, Venus, and Mars do, then maybe we're one of these things we've been calling planets, and that the sun isn't. And so this, whole, so this disturbed what was a simple definition into something that was just kind of a working definition, a working, it was like, okay, this seems right, let's just hold on to that until we're challenged differently. So Copernicus comes in, the number of planets change. And then Uranus gets discovered, and Neptune gets discovered, and Pluto gets, gets discovered, Pluto gets demoted. By the way, in 1800, there was a planet discovered called Ceres, 1801. You never you ever heard of planet Ceres? Probably not, because it's like a, it's an asteroid. <laughs> so <laughs> when it was first discovered, people said, wow, this is great. We found a planet orbiting between, between Mars and Jupiter. Everybody got excited. The textbooks all got adjusted. Then they found another planet there, and then another and another. And another. So they found Ceres, Pallas, Vesta, and Juno. They all got their names, just like the rest of the planets. Everybody was excited. And then a few years later, they found another dozen, and then another 20. And they said, wait, something's going on here. They're all orbiting together in this swath. Maybe it's a different kind of object. 
In fact, they are now collectively known as the asteroids. So we think the Pluto story mirrors this story because we discover Pluto first and everybody's excited. Then we find out, you know, it's not as big as we thought it was. In fact, it's actually pretty small. There's seven moons in the solar system bigger than it. That's, that's kind of embarrassing if you're a planet. <laughs> and its, or, its orbit crosses the orbit of Neptune. Its orbit is tipped out of the plane of the solar system, mostly ice by volume. It would grow a tail if you brought it to where Earth is right now from the heat from the sun. So it was just an oddball. And so then you realize, discovered in the 90s, that there are other icy bodies out there in the outer solar system. And we realized that those icy bodies kind of behave like Pluto. So maybe Pluto has friends and family out there. And so what we did here in New York, in our exhibit, was present Pluto as a member of this new class of object. And that's what got us into trouble. Yeah, I know when you were talking about that first uh, demotion of the planets, uh, the, the, Sir William Herschel was kind of desperate to find an, a new name. Well, what are we going to call these things? Like, we can't really call them planets. Well, no one had discovered a planet before. So uh, this is because we, we had Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. That's it. And no one had discovered a planet until Herschel discovers a planet. And so how do you name it? What is, you know, what is the tradition? How are we going to do this? And he, being a nice, you know, well-funded astronomer in England thought he would just do what any any research scientist does he wanted to name it after his funder <laughs> and his funder was King George uh-huh. so there was planet George there it was Mercury Venus Earth Mars Jupiter Saturn and George <laughs> and there it stayed for several decades until sort of clearer heads prevailed but we, if you, you have textbooks that show planet George in their maps and I don't know about you, but that's an unsettling concept uh, yeah. to have a planet George. Um, so people figured out, well, wait a minute, the other planets, they're actually Roman gods, so let's, why don't we make a new rule that they're be named after Roman gods. And so, now, here's a little-known fact, kind of to appease the British, because you, really, you didn't want to tick off the British being as powerful as they are in their armies and their navies. The, the tradition in progress up until that point was if you had moons, of a planet. Not that you ask, but I think you'll like this answer. If you had moons of a planet, uh-huh. they'd be named after Greek, assorted Greek characters in the life of the Greek counterpart to the Roman god after whom the planet is named. In other words, you have Jupiter, right? Uh-huh. One of Jupiter's moons is Ganymede. So Ganymede was the manservant of Zeus, and Zeus is the counterpart to Jupiter, the Greek counterpart to Jupiter, who's the Roman god. Okay, so that's how you do that. Well, you get to Uranus. Uranus Uranus is the lone exception here. The moons of Uranus are named after assorted fictional characters in Shakespearean literature. Yes. Right out of the pages of British writings. Politics, even in the solar system, even in Maine. That's exactly, you nailed it. There it is. Well, uh, what was originally called George gets renamed Uranus thanks to cooler heads, but the calculations of its orbit after its discovery showed that something was up and sort of in a great moment of, of, of math and astronomy, uh, they went looking for an eighth planet, and by God, they found one. Yeah, because uh, Uranus as a new planet was, was not following Newton's laws of gravity. And so you had two choices. At the time, Newton's laws of gravity was relatively new, and it applied to the sun and the earth and the earth and the moon and the inner planets, but maybe Newton's gravity fails that far away from the sun. That was a possibility. But people said, well, let's hold that. Let's not jump to conclusions just yet. Maybe there's another planet out there whose gravity we haven't included in our equations that's doing the altering of Uranus's orbit. 
so there's a way to invert the, the, the question and say, where would the planet have to be to create this disturbance? And that, thus was the search for the first of the planet X's. And sure enough, they found it right where it was supposed to be, and thus was the discovery of the planet Neptune. But as, as time goes on, uh, I understand that they, they weren't satisfied with how the calculations were coming out for both Uranus and Neptune, and they started looking again for planet X, and it's, which is how Pluto's discovered in some odd circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about, about Percival Lowell and his search for planet X? It's quite a tale. Yeah, so, so, now, so now we've got Neptune, and they say, well, let's check out Neptune. Turns out Neptune's orbit, when you have enough data to look at, because these, these things move real slowly in the outer solar system, uh, it turned out Neptune's orbit looked like it needed some adjustments as well. Again, are you going to throw away Newton's laws? Or are you just, well, why don't, why don't we just do what we did last time and propose another planet X? And so it was, the search for planet X. And Percival Lowell, we're now well into the 1800s, late 1800s now. Percival Lowell, one of the moneyed Lowells from New England, basically acquired a mountain in Arizona, built an observatory called, of course, the Lowell Observatory, and launched the search for Planet X, sort of the modern search for Planet X. By the way, Lowell is also best known for canals on Mars. He's the one, he's responsible for seeing what no one else saw before, during, or since, canals on Mars. And it's, it's pretty clear that it was just all in his head at this point. But nonetheless, he launched this search, and he died before it was found. Um, uh, Clyde Tombaugh, 24-year-old farm boy from the Midwest, was hired to pick up this survey. And it was systematic, he was careful, he was good at it. And lo and behold, 1930, he discovers what people are pretty sure is Planet X. They looked where Planet X should have been from the calculations, and they didn't find it. So it required a systematic survey to find. And so they find Pluto, and they say, well, wait a minute, this Pluto's kind of small. It's, you know, it's, in fact, it did not have enough mass to account for the disturbances in Neptune. So it was not the Planet X that everyone had been looking for, but nonetheless, people were happy. A new planet. But over the decades, better and better measurements showed that Pluto was smaller than anyone had ever imagined for it. And its size didn't settle out until the 1970s when it was understood what its real size is. And there's seven moons in the solar system bigger than Pluto. Like I said, that's just embarrassing. Yes, it is. Yeah, I remember very well in the early 80s, and you cite uh, in your book a very, uh, very funny paper that was published showing that if you plot out the estimates of Pluto's mass, it looked as though it was going to go to zero pretty soon. <laughs> that's right. The, slope, the dropping slope of everybody's estimates for how the size of Pluto would go through, this, through the x-axis, would go through zero. <laughs> uh, it, at, at the time the paper was written, late 70s, they said it would we'll go through zero in 1984. <laughs> so they said, I think the title, I forgot the exact title, something like, Disturbing News About Pluto, <laughs> the Impending Disappearance of Pluto. Yes. It was, it was, it was tongue-in-cheek, of course, but yes. it was a, it's a statement about our ability to measure small things. We're speaking with Neil deGrasse Tyson about his book, The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. Uh, Dr. Tyson, I, I once uh, met Clyde Tombaugh, and when I shook his hand, I said, it isn't every day you get to meet someone who's discovered a planet. And that was in, uh, at a planet fest in, in 1989. At that point, there were surely a lot of people doubting whether Pluto should be considered a full-fledged planet. But within a few years, um, astronomers looking out at the edge of the solar system uh, found some objects that were really casting some doubts on this. Yeah, in the early days, I, ca I count the 80s now as the early days in this, in this discussion, the... People had known for decades that Pluto was odd. 
it's that simple. It's the composition, the orbital tilt, the size. It just didn't fit in with the rest of the planets. And so if you, even if you look at textbooks, Pluto was no longer enumerated with the rest of the planets. There it was sort of buried in the chapter on the vagabonds of the solar system, that sort of thing. So it was already in trouble. People knew this. And so, but there was not a movement. It was just, you know, you'd whisper it behind closed doors. Plus, Clyde Tombaugh, you know, he has cane. You know, this guy would come at you with his cane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he felt strongly about what he found back in 1930. And the man's the man, 95 years old. You're not going to fight him, you know, to let that one go. Mm-hmm. And it was not until the 1990s when the first of the Kuiper Belt objects what shall I say, the second of the Kuiper Belt objects <laughs> was discovered. And this population began to be built up, and we all came to realize that there's this new swath of real estate sitting there. Well, the, the Hayden Planetarium set out to put a big exhibit, a spectacular exhibit of the solar system, and a decision was made by, by you good folks to maybe just to not include Pluto. And nobody squawked about that at first, but then uh, soon enough, a pro-Pluto backlash arose, making you the villain. Uh, can you talk about how that, how that unfolded? Yeah, it turns out it's not that we didn't, it, it's, we didn't kick Pluto out, or we've been stereotyped as having done that, but we didn't say there are now eight planets, or Pluto's not, not big enough to make it in New York. You know, <laughs> this is <laughs> things that people have said about it. What all we did was reorganize the contents of the solar system. We didn't redefine words. All we did was say to ourselves that the enumeration of planets memorized in sequence from the sun is not a scientific or educationally useful exercise. So we simply said, well, Pluto looks like these other guys in the outer solar system. Let's group them together. And how about these gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune? Let's group them together. Then the the rocky small ones, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And so the family photo of the solar system were these groups of like objects. That's what we presented. But the New York Times, in a page one story, says, Pluto not a planet, only in New York. (laughs) And that's when the hate mail started. Because that's when we were accused of kicking it out of the solar system. So I got this fat file in my file drawer that's, that's filled with comments and criticisms and people choosing sides and and people writing poems and song lyrics and and comics and op-ed pieces so I'm, i'm astonished and impressed by the breadth and depth of the public's sentiment expressed on this subject and we all know why it's the dog it's the dog yeah, yeah, I blame I, the dog. Let's talk about how it's sort of odd that uh, the that, that the naming of Pluto is an odd story itself, and how that name quickly got mixed up with Disney. Yeah, well, in American, it turns out could not have possibly come up with a name for Pluto, because at the time, a widely advertised mineral water <laughs> was was being sold as a laxative, and it was called Pluto water, with the slogan "When nature won't." <laughs> Pluto will. All right? This is what Americans are thinking about the, the name Pluto. So a cosmic object is not getting named by an American in that way. So it was an 11-year-old girl in Cambridge, England. Venetia Fair was her name. Her father was like head of the Cambridge Library who was buddies with the Astronomer Royal. She was connected. She had just learned about mythology in her, in her elementary school class, uh, Roman mythology, and there was Pluto, the god of the underworld, and it was dark and distant and figured that would be a good name for this dark and distant object. And so this went through the channels, it stuck, and there it is. 
1930 was the same year Disney first sketched Mickey's dog, Pluto. So they have the same tenure in the hearts and minds of Americans. That's why I blame the dog. That's yeah. why I blame the dog. <laughs> yes. You go to Europe, they don't care the way they do here in America. Well, in spite of this tsunami of, of I guess, uh, this, these objections from the school children of America, uh, you, you do have good relations with your peers. And I want to note that Alan Stern, who's the man in charge of that NASA's mission out to Pluto, did invite you to the launch of the spacecraft in spite of uh, disagreeing you over, over its demotion. Yes, I was not. <laughs> I was not delisted from <laughs> from the invitation <laughs> to these celebrations. So yes, we are good friends. Alan Stern is the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission to Pluto. So he's a big fan. Uh, he's of the definitions of the modern voted definition of planets. He wants to remove one of the criteria, and the criteria he doesn't like is the one that really uh, that that Pluto has a problem with. The one he doesn't like is the requirement that first you not only have to be round, which Pluto is, but you have to have also cleared your orbit of debris. And with all these icy bodies in the outer solar system orbiting with Pluto. Pluto has not cleared its zone. Yeah. And so he, he, does, he wants to ignore the clear zone part and just say, if you're round, you're a planet. And if that's the case, then we get the asteroid series would become a planet, and Sedna would become a planet. So the planet count would go up instead of down. But I maintain that we shouldn't be counting planets. That's, that's just where I sit on this. Well, yeah, you also quote Bill Nye, the science guy. He says, well, if we're going to call this a dwarf planet, uh, that's a pretty unsatisfactory term. It still uses the word planet. Well, I, I think of it as, I mean, if you, if, if you have to live with the, nom, the, new, the new nomenclature, then maybe dwarf is not, a, is not a demotion. Maybe it's not a demotion any more than compact car is a demotion of a car. You go into a, a parking garage, you, get to, you park where the compact car spots are, and no one says that's not a car. It's just an, it's another kind of car. That's all. So those who are trying to console Pluto are saying, you're not any less of a planet, you're just another kind of planet. But the, the people really feel this, definitely see it as a demotion for the guy. Well, something that I don't think the public really appreciates is that now they've actually discovered something out near Pluto that really is bigger than Pluto, and, and no one's probably more disappointed by Pluto's demotion than Mike Brown, the man who discovered Eris, which would otherwise he would credit him with being a, a planetary discoverer. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, that's right, because one would force the definition of the other. And so uh, Mike Brown in, uh, in, in Eris, it finally got named Eris. For a while it was named, uh, what's that woman's name? Xena. TV show. <laughs> uh, Xena. <laughs> I wanted to keep that name Yeah, so that was a cool name. That was totally cool. The <laughs> butt-kicking, you know, cave, cave war warrior woman. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so anyhow, it was it was a it was a placeholder name until the IAU commission could weigh in on what name would be appropriate. But yeah, there are these other round objects in the outer solar system that rival Pluto in size, and some are even larger. So, if those were not planets, then Pluto would have to would definitely have to be knocked out of the club. Yeah. But if they are, then they would be bringing Pluto with it, and then we'd have many more objects, planets discovered by an American. And, and that's right, uh, Mike Brown was was a leading player there. And I've always been, as an aside, sort of astounded by the fact that, uh, that Dr. Kuiper said, you know, there's got to be a, a belt of ice balls out there past Neptune, and, and, and by God, he was right. Yeah, I mean, good theorists have a good, have a good nose for what should or should not be so in the universe. And Gerard Kuiper, this is now 60 years ago, thought to himself, I don't see a large planet out there 
Yet the solar system is formed from the accretion of debris from the original gas cloud that made it. And if it's no, if, if there's nothing to, if there's no source of high gravity to sort of vacuum up this debris, then this debris should still be out there. Why don't you look for it? And we needed the biggest telescope in the world to find it, and it took 40 years into the 1990s before the existence of what we now call the Kuiper Belt was established. And if you don't mind, Dr. Tyson, I want to just uh, mention another book you wrote I uh, like very much, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic uh, Quandaries. Uh, that came out two years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, you, you had a great calculation in there that I just loved. You, you did the math on, it's noting that it's so hot on Venus that you could cook a pepperoni pizza in seven seconds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, well, you just put it out on the windowsill. It'll cook in seven seconds, right? It also really makes me take my hat at those Soviet scientists that actually landed a probe and got some pictures on the surface. Holy mackerel! Well, yeah, it wasn't for very long, though. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's a dangerous place to be for all of your equipment. And so, yeah, it's it's. By the way, if you want to know how you do that calculation, there's not only how much hotter Venus is than Earth. But there's also how much denser the atmosphere is. Uh -huh. Because the more molecules are in the atmosphere for any given sort of square inch, the more heat can be transmitted to the pizza for every square inch of, of cooking surface. So both of those factors combine to rapidly cook the pizza. And you have to cook a pizza because the pizza is thin enough to not burn it on the inside. You, you can't cook a roast that way because you'll just singe the outside and the inside will still be raw or frozen. So you need something really thin. So peach is the ideal food to test this on. It's more math than I can tackle, I'm afraid. Okay. But, uh, but uh, you also noted in Death by Black Hole your enthusiasm for that possibility of life in that, in that famous Martian meteorite. Uh, I did hear a personal pitch from one of the scientists involved at one of those Planet Fest events, and boy, that really is a fascinating possibility. Yeah, whether or not the life on that Mars meteorite was real or just uh, sort of circumstantial, accumulation of biomarkers. The fact is Mars remains the strongest candidate in the solar system for uh, where you would search for life. And uh, among other things, it has a lot of similarities to Earth. It has a 24-hour day. Its axis is tipped like ours is, so it has seasons as we do, has polar ice caps. It once had liquid running water on its surface in great quantities. It has meandering riverbeds, all bone dry today, by the way. And so, so, if, so where's the water today? We think it may be in the subsurface. If it's under high enough pressure, it may liquefy. And just recently, a couple of weeks ago, they found methane on Mars. And we know met, you can make methane sort of by natural causes, but a fun way to make it is by the action of microbes, anaerobically behaving microbes, like what you find deep in the intestinal guts of farm animals. So there's the chance that we are seeing the action of, of anaerobic microbes in the gaseous effluences of the Martian surface. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I mean, Mars, so Mars is the top of anybody's list. And there's some other places, too, like one of Jupiter's moons, Europa. It's got this thick ice cover. And the inside is kept warm by the gravitational stresses imparted on it by Jupiter and other surrounding satellites. So that's another intriguing place to think about this. We're running out, out of time here, unfortunately, but uh, a final question back to, to Pluto. You note that no matter what we decide to call it, a Kuiper Belt object, trans-Neptunian object, giant comet, uh, dwarf planet, whatever, really isn't so important as the fact that it's a very, very interesting place. And we're going to get that look at it and finally in, in, in 2015. And um, any, any 
you expect any surprises, like we found when we went to, to Triton at Neptune? First, there are certain things that are secure about Pluto. We know how long it takes to orbit. We know the ellipticity of the orbit. There's some fundamental sort of large-scale properties that are known and understood. So what's really going to come out of this are sort of detailed observations. You know, the best image we have from Hubble is, is, is fuzzy from Pluto, because Pluto is just so far away. So we're going to go there, and I don't want to overstate that. It's actually a flyby. We're not going to go into orbit. We're not going to be able to hang out. And the flyby will go from... Pluto to other Kuiper Belt objects. And so we'll learn more about the Kuiper Belt and Pluto as a principal member of the Kuiper Belt. We'll learn about Pluto's surface, the, the chemistry of the evaporating gases from that surface, we'll learn more about its orbit, orbital details, anything about Charon, not very much is known about Pluto's moon Charon. So it'll put Pluto in the same sort of ranks as the kind of information we've already acquired from other planets. And we'd never been there before, so yeah. this is a first. And as we close, we want to put a plug in, too, for the good people at NASA. We're going to get our first look at the, at, the, at a dwarf planet at Ceres, the largest asteroid in a couple years due to the Dawn exactly. mission. Exactly. Thanks for remembering that mission. That's an important mission, yeah. Going to fly by Mars next month, get a course correction, and go off and take a look at Ceres. We've been speaking with astrophysicist and raconteur Neil deGrasse Tyson, who himself has an asteroid named after him, about his new book, The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. Dr. Tyson, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me on. And keep, keep up the good work, too. I hope we'll speak All right, again. Thanks. All yeah, right. Good luck with that. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.